You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the Redacted History Podcast, we've talked about a lot, and some of my favorite episodes are some of your favorite episodes, and they all seem to capture the same themes and feelings. I've always been fascinated with stories of resilience and bravery, like Mary Bowser, the enslaved woman from Virginia who got her freedom but decided to fight the good fight as a spy for the Union Army, or Robert Smalls, an enslaved man from South Carolina who stole both his family's freedom and a Confederate ship and sailed away into the night. And today's podcast episode captures those themes beautifully. Today, we're talking about the Battle of Gettysburg when Confederate troops engaged with Union troops outside of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, setting off one of the bloodiest and most important battles of the American Civil War. And this led to the Gettysburg Address, when in the midst of this bloody and tumultuous war, President Abraham Lincoln gave one of the most famous speeches in American history. And today, I'm going to enlist a little bit of help from my friend Lindsey Graham and the History Daily Podcast. History Daily is one of my favorite podcasts, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. The host, Lindsey Graham, takes you back in time to explore a momentous event that happened on this day in history. And he does it in an absolutely captivating style with a voice that will lure you in to super engaging topics. Whether it's to remember the tragedy of December 7th, 1941, the day that will live in infamy, or to celebrate that 20th day in July 1969 when mankind reached the moon. History Daily is there to tell you the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world, one day at a time. The thing I love about this show is that episodes are released every weekday, and much like mine, the episodes are short and concise, yet thorough. So anytime you need a daily dose of history, History Daily should be a go-to. You can find the link to History Daily in the show notes below. Now, let's get to the show. It's May 1863 at the Chancellor House in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, two years into the American Civil War. 14-year-old Sue Chancellor crouches in her bedroom as the sound of Confederate cannons echo outside. Days ago, her home was taken over by Union General Joseph Hooker. Hooker's been using Sue's house as his headquarters and a military hospital during this days-long engagement that will come to be known as the Battle of Chancellorville. And today, the rebels have Sue's house surrounded. Sue hears a pounding on the door and a Union soldier calling out to her. Sue darts across the room and throws the door open. The soldier tells Sue that she needs to get to the cellar for safety. 
cannon fire grows louder as Sue rushes down a hallway toward the stairs. Sue stumbles as a Confederate strike hits close enough to shake the walls of the house. Sue runs faster, desperate to reach the cellar. She barrels down the stairs to the first floor, and there she hears the groans of wounded men as she runs to the steps that lead down to the basement. Sue closes the door behind her, and inside she sees her mother and sister already huddled together in the dark, their faces illuminated by the glow of a burning candle. She breathes a sigh of relief. As she rushes to her mother, she prays the cellar will be enough to protect them. But then, the house shudders from a direct hit, and Sue hears shouting from above. Soon, a Union soldier opens the cellar door. He says they have to get out, and now... Sue bounds up the steps, followed by her mother and sister. Upstairs, Sue and her family move through the choking smoke and push outside where Union soldiers wait to take them to safety. As the troops lead Sue and her family off, she looks back and sees her home burning to the ground. Sue is grateful to these soldiers who are helping her escape, but they fight for the Union, and the Union stole her house. Now it's been destroyed, and Sue hopes the Union's chances at victory will be destroyed with it. At the outset of the Battle of Chancellorville, Union General Joseph Hooker was confident he would quickly get the best of the rebels. His army outnumbered them almost two to one. Still, days later, the battle is still raging, and Hooker is on his heels. His makeshift headquarters is destroyed, and soon Robert E. Lee's Confederate Army will have him and his men on the run. The improbable Southern victory at Chancellorville emboldens General Lee. Following the battle, Lee will decide to take the fight to the Union on their own soil. Lee's decision will prove to be a turning point in the Civil War, and it will set off the deadliest fight of the conflict, the Battle of Gettysburg, which begins on this day, July 1st, 1863. You've heard us promote various ways that you can help us keep the show going, but one way we haven't pushed too much yet is our sutlery at addressinggettysburg.com shop. And that's a shame, because we have designs over there by talented artists like Ty DeWitt of 1863designs and Mike Stretch of the Heritage Depot. So now we're promoting it. Buying shirts, hoodies, mugs, and other items from our sutlery not only helps us keep the lights on, but it also helps guys like Ty and Mike, and it helps spread the word about the show every time you wear an item or sip from your mug. So please, head over to addressinggettysburg.com shop and grab some merch. You just might find the perfect Christmas gift for the Gettys nerd in your family. That's addressinggettysburg.com shop. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is July 1st, 1863. The Battle of Gettysburg begins. It's May 14th, 1863, at Confederate President Jefferson Davis's office in Richmond, Virginia. General Robert E. Lee steps into the room and greets Davis warmly and confidently. Lee feels more assured in himself and his army than he ever has during the war, and he's here to win Davis over to an ambitious plan he's been putting together. 
Lee's recent victory at the Battle of Chancellorville has convinced him that the time is right for his Army of Northern Virginia to invade Union territory. Lee understands that his strategy could leave Southern strongholds vulnerable, but he thinks gaining ground in the North is worth the risk, and now he has to get Davis to agree with him. Lee takes a seat across from the Confederate president and makes his case. Lee is known as a keen military strategist, but he's also skilled at talking to politicians. To win Davis over, Lee focuses on a goal that Davis is desperate to achieve. Lee says a victory on northern soil will demonstrate to President Abraham Lincoln that major Union cities like Washington, Philadelphia, and New York are not safe. Lee says the threat of southern armies marching on the North's political, economic, and cultural centers would convince Lincoln to seek peace with the Confederacy and perhaps end the war. This is exactly what Davis wants. But the Confederate president is quick to remind General Lee that they've been down this road before. He brings up Lee's crushing defeat at Antietam, the only civil war battle Lee waged in the North. Still, Lee doesn't back down. He argues that this time will be different, saying his soldiers are more battle-tested, and he uses the events at Chancellorville to prove that even when outnumbered, the South has the superior army. Then Lee tells Davis that if they truly want to end the war, they have to make Northerners feel like the battle is happening in their own backyard. Lee's confidence is enough to convince Davis, who gives the general his blessing to lead the charge north. Soon, Lee leaves Richmond and hurries back to Fredericksburg, Virginia, where his troops are gathered. As Lee surveys his men, he feels like a proud father. The Confederates lack the Union Army's resources, often marching barefoot and without food. But that makes Lee love them even more. The general sees them as brave, ferocious fighters, while he views the Union Army as a pampered force led by feeble generals. But as confident as Lee is in his men, he's not interested in waging another battle against an army twice as large as his, like he did at Chancellorville. So Lee bides his time for a few weeks and takes on thousands of new recruits who are eager to join the fight. By June of 1863, Lee has amassed an army of close to 75,000 soldiers. He devises a strategy to cross the Potomac into Maryland and then move into southern Pennsylvania. Lee believes fighting in the Keystone State puts him close enough to several major northern cities to pose a significant threat and hopefully bring President Lincoln and the Union to heel. Lee is ready to march, but before he gives his orders, he pictures the upcoming campaign in his head. Lee prides himself on outthinking his enemy, and he wants to keep the North guessing at his plans for as long as he can. So Lee chooses a path through Virginia that won't immediately indicate that he's bound for Union territory. Early in the morning on June 3, 1863, General Lee leads the march from Fredericksburg under the cover of darkness. And later that day, when Union General Joseph Hooker, head of the Army of the Potomac, receives word that Lee is on the move, he panics. Hooker is still reeling from his defeat at Chancellorville, and he has no desire to engage Lee again so soon after their last clash. But Hooker doesn't have a choice in the matter. He receives a message from President Abraham Lincoln stating that the Army of the Potomac's priority is to defeat Lee, but first, Hooker must find him. Over the next few weeks, Hooker pursues Lee through Virginia, but he has no idea where the Confederate Army is going. In late June, General Lee will finally make his plans known when he orders his troops into Pennsylvania to launch an attack. 
Our favorite bookstore in Gettysburg is For the Historian, located at 42 York Street. Isn't it, Eric? You're darn tootin', Matt. (laughs) It's because they have the best selection of Civil War books in Gettysburg, both new and used. And online, they have even more books to choose from. But Matthew, what if the Civil War is simply not my thing? Not a problem, my fine four-fendered friend. This is for the historian, after all. They cover history from the ancient world to the 21st century with a strong selection of World War II and American Revolution books. It's astounding how they squeeze thousands of titles from Osprey, Savas Beatty, UNC Press, and more into their store. And it's also astounding how you and I both squeeze into our pants every day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, handsome, they have a warehouse, too, and that's where they keep all those books that are available online at ForTheHistorian.com. And folks, if you go to ForTheHistorian.com now and order books until you're blooming the face, be sure you mention that you heard about them on Addressing Gettysburg in the Note to Seller box, and they will refund your shipping costs. What if I prefer to browse in the store and don't want to go online to get my book? Great question, Doodlebug. Just mention Addressing Gettysburg at checkout, and they'll take 20% off the retail price of your item. So go to ForTheHistorian.com, stop by 42 York Street, or call 717-685-5207. That's ForTheHistorian.com or 717-685-5207. It's June 26, 1863, on a road in southern Pennsylvania. A young Confederate soldier marches with his regiment. He chews on a piece of fresh bread that a Dutch woman gave him as he passed her house. As he walks with his fellow soldiers, he gazes up at the beautiful cherry trees that shade the road. The food and scenery make him feel like he's on a leisurely stroll, not advancing into enemy territory. The Confederate army has been marching for weeks. Under orders from General Robert E. Lee, The rebels made their way out of Virginia, through Maryland, and into southern Pennsylvania. And all the while, Lee managed to keep his plans hidden from the Union. Today, these Confederate soldiers entered Pennsylvania undetected. But they're about to come face to face with the enemy. As the young Confederate marches, chewing on his bread, he hears something in the distance. The young soldier stops his marching. He and the other men hear drumming, and then the sound of a camp not far off. Right away, they send a scouting party ahead to evaluate. The scouts return with good news. The camp houses only a few hundred Pennsylvania militiamen. It's not a major Union force, and it's ripe for an ambush. The young Confederate soldier moves quickly down the road. When the camp is within striking distance, he lets out the famed rebel yell. Both sides exchange fire, but the Pennsylvania militiamen are clearly outnumbered, so they make a run for it. The Confederates pursue them for miles and eventually take over 100 prisoners. But some of the militiamen get away, and they take news of the Confederate invasion with them. Later that night, word of the Confederate push into Pennsylvania reaches Union General Joseph Hooker in Maryland. But Hooker doesn't order a march toward the enemy. He turns north and tries to create some distance between him and the rebels. Hooker fears he isn't ready to do battle with Robert E. Lee. He remembers all too well how Lee defeated him at Chancellorville, even though Hooker had him greatly outnumbered. Now, Lee has even more men in his immediate command than Hooker does, and Hooker is desperate to stall for time enough for reinforcements to arrive. In hopes of bolstering his army, Hooker sends a telegraph message to President Lincoln, asking for an additional 10,000 troops. 
But the president denies the request, seeing it as a sign that Hooker is afraid to challenge the Army of Northern Virginia. Lincoln fears the General Hooker is not up to the task. On the night of June 27th, Lincoln calls an emergency meeting with his Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton. The president says he's done with generals like Hooker, who seem to be awed by the military prowess of Robert E. Lee. And after a lengthy discussion, Lincoln and Stanton decide to remove Hooker from command of the Army of the Potomac. They replace him with Major General George Meade. Lincoln likes Meade because he expresses no fear or wonderment regarding Lee's abilities. Also, Meade is a Pennsylvania man, and Lincoln says he hopes Meade will fight well on his own dunghill. Before dawn, on June 28, 1863, Major General George Meade wakes up in his tent in Maryland to find a courier standing over him. Meade serves under General Hooker in the Army of the Potomac, so he assumes the courier is delivering Hooker's early morning instructions. But as Meade listens to what the courier has to say, he learns that President Lincoln has ordered him to replace his commanding officer. Hearing the news, Meade is suddenly wide awake. He gets dressed and steps outside, takes in the air, and ponders Lincoln's decision. In the early rays of dawn, Meade cuts an imposing figure. He's tall, with a graying beard, and age cracks his face. Meade's physical attributes and his quick temper have led his officers to nickname him the Old Snapping Turtle. But Lincoln's message causes Meade to evaluate himself as a leader. Meade respects honesty and dependability, and he isn't afraid of anyone, certainly not Robert E. Lee. Meade is certain that those are the reasons Lincoln has called on him to face down the invading rebels. So later that day, Meade assumes control of the Army of the Potomac. But Meade has no intention of chasing Lee. Instead, he instructs his generals to fan out across southern Pennsylvania, where he'll soon join them. Then he orders them to prepare to throw everything they have at the enemy. Soon, General Meade's strategy will bring the Union and Confederate armies face-to-face in Pennsylvania, where a surprise attack will spark the beginning of the Battle of Gettysburg. The Seminary Ridge Museum and Education Center, Gettysburg's premier museum, is housed in the historic Lutheran Seminary building constructed in 1832, a witness to the first day of battle. The museum's three floors of exhibits connect visitors to the dilemmas that led to the Civil War, provide a powerful and personal view of the battle's first day, and explore one of the battlefield's largest hospitals. No visit to the Seminary Ridge Museum and Education Center is complete without a guided tour of the building's famous cupola, where on the eve of battle, often and civilians saw thousands of Confederate soldiers' campfires burning to the west, and Brigadier General John Buford watched for vital federal reinforcements as fighting erupted on July 1st. Today, you can stand where Buford stood and delivered the line, There's a devil to pay! and discover how this view helped chart the course of the Battle of Gettysburg. Trust me when I say, ladies and gentlemen, your trip to Gettysburg is not complete without a serious visit to the Seminary Ridge Museum and Education Center, Gettysburg's premier museum. Go to www.seminaryridgemuseum.org or find them at 111 Seminary Ridge, Gettysburg, the Seminary Ridge Museum and Education Center. It all began here. It's almost 7.30 a.m. on July 1st, 1863, on a road outside Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Confederate General Henry Heath leads over 7,000 troops towards the town. Heath is alert, but he isn't overly cautious. General Robert E. Lee has laid out plans to launch his battle against Union forces from Cashtown, located about eight miles northwest of Gettysburg. 
Heath's men are in desperate need of supplies, especially shoes, to prepare for the battle. So Heath is leading them into Gettysburg in hopes of finding what they need there. Heath's understanding is that the only Union soldiers in the area are a small number of ragtag militiamen. But as Heath approaches Gettysburg, he and his troops spot Union cavalry riding fast to meet them. Soon the Confederates are under fire. Heath and his men scramble to fire back. This is no small militia coming his way. It's a Union cavalry division of close to 3,000 men. Heath orders his men to fall back and take up fighting positions. But even though the Union army is outnumbered, they've caught the Confederates by surprise and managed to stand their ground. Then at 10.15 a.m., Union General John Reynolds arrives with over 13,000 reinforcements. But within 15 minutes of arriving at the battlefield, Reynolds takes a bullet to the head. With his death, the Northern soldiers are in disarray. The situation gets worse when Robert E. Lee and his troops arrive from Cashtown, swinging the balance of power and giving the Confederates superior numbers. Lee's men enable the Confederates to push the Union lines back, and at 4.30 p.m., the Northern Army retreats through Gettysburg. By the end of the first day of fighting, Lee believes he's on the brink of another Confederate victory. But late that night, Union General George Meade arrives. Meade refuses to retreat any further. He sends out calls for roughly 90,000 more men to join the fight at Gettysburg. And over the following two days, the growing Northern Army beats the Confederacy back and eventually sends Robert E. Lee and his men marching home to Virginia in defeat. But in the course of the battle, the two armies have suffered monumental losses. Over 50,000 men are dead, wounded, or missing, the largest number of American casualties from a single battle in history. Some historians will argue that Lee's overconfidence led to his defeat at Gettysburg. Others will credit Meade and his generals for refusing to give up the fight, even when it looked like the North would lose. But regardless of the reasons for the battle's outcome, the Union victory shatters Robert E. Lee's reputation as being invincible. And four and a half months later, President Lincoln uses the victory in his Gettysburg Address to serve as a rallying cry for the Union Army and Northern cause. The South abandons Lee's strategy and will not again fight on Northern soil. The Civil War will rage on for another two years, and thousands more will lose their lives. But the path towards the eventual victory for the Union was set in motion when the Battle of Gettysburg began on July 1st, 1863. History is made every day. On this podcast every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is November 19th, the Gettysburg Address. It's early July, 1863, at the War Department. President Abraham Lincoln paces back and forth in the telegraph office. For days, the president has barely eaten. He hasn't washed his hands or face or gotten a good night's sleep. He looks weary and frail, his failing health exacerbated by the stress of presiding over a broken nation. The American Civil War is at its peak. Over the past year, Confederate General Robert E. Lee has scored a string of military victories in his home state of Virginia. Now, Lee sets his sights on invading the North and bringing the war to a swift end. The Union Army marched out to meet Lee on the field at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Today, Lincoln waits to hear the result of the battle, one that may very well decide the outcome of the war. Soon, a telegram arrives from the front. When Lincoln reads the words, 
A smile stretches across his face. He doesn't yet know the full details, but it appears the Union is victorious. At 10 a.m. on July 4th, Lincoln sends out a press release. The president announces to the country that the news from the Army of the Potomac is such as to cover that army with the highest honor, to promise a great success to the cause of the Union, and to claim the condolence of all for the many gallant fallen. Indeed, as many as 50,000 troops were injured or killed during the Battle of Gettysburg. The cost of the battle is tremendous, but so is the consequence. The Union victory stifles General Lee's ambitions to invade the North and turns the tide of the war. But the celebration doesn't last long. Soon, Lincoln learns that General Meade, the Union officer in command at Gettysburg, did not pursue the retreating Confederate army. Frustrated, Lincoln sends Meade a direct order. You will follow up and attack General Lee as soon as possible before he can cross the river. While Meade chases after General Lee, Lincoln again paces the halls of the telegraph office, his face grave and his mood anxious. As telegrams come in from the front, Lincoln traces the positions of the two armies on a map. He worries that Meade will never catch up to Lee's location. And eventually, Lee does manage to escape across the Potomac River into Virginia. Days later, Lincoln vents to one of his cabinet secretaries. If I had gone up there, I would have whipped them myself. Our army held the war in the hollow of their hand, and they would not close it. Increasingly frustrated, Lincoln writes another letter to Meade. My dear general, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. But after penning the letter, Lincoln takes a moment, and his cooler head prevails. He decides not to send it. But his prediction is not far off the mark. If Meade had given faster pursuit, he might have been able to capture Lee and force a rebel surrender. Instead, the war will continue for another two years. Meanwhile, other parts of the nation are in open revolt, especially in the North. In July, the same month as the Battle of Gettysburg, riots break out in New York City in response to a military draft. For three days straight, mobs of working-class men, primarily Irish-Americans, marched through the streets, looting and setting fires to buildings. Hearing this, Lincoln, a man known for his fits of melancholy, falls into a deep despair. He is so despondent that at a cabinet meeting in mid-July, Lincoln tells his secretaries that he is not in the right frame of mind to take up the issues. And besides, Lincoln points out, there is little he can do as president. The governor of New York has not asked for federal assistance to quell the riots. Some advisors pressure Lincoln to launch a formal investigation, but Lincoln resists. An investigation into the cause of the riots will only fan the flames of discontent in New York and elsewhere. Lincoln states, one rebellion at a time is about as much as we can conveniently handle. But underneath his dry wit, Lincoln knows the cause of the riots. The people of the North are growing weary of the bloody and costly war. So Lincoln begins to formulate a plan to heal the wounds of his broken union and rally his people. But Lincoln will not use the mechanisms of federal power. Instead, he will use the power of his pen. The 1863 civilians of Gettysburg were reluctant witnesses to the great battle. Join Ken Rich, the man in the red shirt, for his historic town walking tours. You could book these tours by emailing ken at gettysburgtownhistory.com. That's ken at gettysburgtownhistory.com. And when you're in town, look for the guy in the red shirt.
It's late summer 1863 at the White House. The First Lady, Mary Todd Lincoln, and her children are away for the summer. President Lincoln stayed behind to work. He sits at his desk, his thoughts consumed by two wars, one in the field and one in the halls of power. With the prosecution of the war in the capable hands of General Ulysses S. Grant, Lincoln allows his thoughts to dwell on the most important political issue of the day, the question of slavery. Back in January, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which ended slavery in the rebel states. By doing so, many in his party believe Lincoln has gone too far. Many others believe he hasn't gone far enough in pursuing true racial equality in all states. With the fall elections right around the corner, Lincoln knows he needs to unite his party. If the Democrats win the fall midterm elections, it will hurt his chances of winning re-election as president in 1864. Lincoln was recently invited to attend a political rally in his hometown of Springfield, Illinois. He longs to see his beloved Springfield again, but he knows he can't attend. There's too much work to be done in Washington. So Lincoln pens a speech to be read in his absence. He extols the virtues of fighting for the cause of the Union, but he also implores the people not to forget that he promised the slaves freedom and that the promise being made, it must be kept. To those who would not fight for the freed slave, Lincoln warns that after the war, there will be some black men who can remember that with silent tongue and clenched teeth and steady eye and well-poised bayonet, they have helped mankind onto this great consummation. While I fear there will be some white ones, unable to forget that with malignant heart and deceitful speech, they have strove to hinder it. Lincoln ends the letter with a unifying tone, writing, For the great republic, for the principle it lives by and keeps alive for man's vast future, thanks to all. Over 50,000 people attend the rally in Springfield. After hearing Lincoln's words, they leap to their feet. Lincoln's supporters call it a noble, patriotic letter. His detractors call it a stump speech. They accuse Lincoln of openly campaigning for office, a cardinal sin in Lincoln's time. Either way, the speech has the desired effect. Lincoln's words are published in newspapers far and wide, and they help Republicans all across the country gain victories at the polls. But this will not be the last time Lincoln will use the power of his words. Before the year is out, he will once again use language to change the course of history. In mid-November 1863, all is quiet on the war front. The flurry of the 1863 election has died down, and once again, President Lincoln is in his office alone, lost in thoughts. He has a yearning to write another address, not a political speech like the one he wrote for the Springfield rally. He wants this one to be different. Lincoln first had the notion back in early July, right after the Battle of Gettysburg. He told a crowd outside the White House then, I am very glad indeed to see you tonight. Then Lincoln reflected on the fact that the Battle of Gettysburg was won on the anniversary of America's independence. He asked the crowd, How long ago is it, eighty-odd years, since the first time in the history of the world a nation, by its representatives, assembled and declared as a self-evident truth that all men are created equal? Lincoln then told the crowd he wanted to give a speech, but that he wasn't prepared to make one worthy of the occasion. At the time, Lincoln didn't have the right words, and now he still doesn't. But he does have the perfect occasion coming up, the dedication of the new cemetery at Gettysburg, set to take place in just a few days' time on November 19, 1863. So as he sits at his desk, 
Lincoln reflects on the many letters he's received from the people imploring him to offer some words of comfort and purpose to remind the people why their loved ones are fighting and dying. Lincoln spent weeks reflecting on what to write. And now finally, he lets loose his pen. The first sentence comes quickly, four score and seven years ago. The rest of the speech flows from his pen without interruption until he writes the sentence, it is rather for us the living to stand here at this, he pauses for a moment, then crosses out the last three words, replacing them. But he doesn't like the alternate version either. Stymied, he decides to take a break. In the days that follow, Lincoln continues to wrestle with the address in search of the perfect combination of thoughts and the words to express them. He doesn't ask for help. He doesn't show or read the incomplete work to anyone. Instead, on November 18, 1863, he leaves the White House on a train bound for Gettysburg, with his unfinished address in tow, on his way to make history. It's just after 5 p.m. on November 18, 1863, in Gettysburg. Lincoln has just arrived at the rail station. A man named David Wills, a local attorney, is there to greet him. Wills is a wealthy, powerful man. And at his behest, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania bought 17 acres for a cemetery to honor the dead from the battle. Wills invited Lincoln to come to Gettysburg and say a few words at the dedication ceremony tomorrow. But unbeknownst to Wills, Lincoln hasn't finished his speech yet. And already it's a frantic morning. Just before he boarded the train, Lincoln learned that his son Tad had taken ill and that the First Lady was hysterical. Still duty called, so Lincoln boarded the train to make the trip anyway. Now, shortly after his arrival, Lincoln receives a telegram from one of his cabinet secretaries reading, Mrs. Lincoln informed me that your son is better this evening. Lincoln is relieved to hear the news, but he also knows he still has work to do. So after arriving at Will's home, where Lincoln is staying the night, the president retires early. The next morning, on November 19, 1863, President Lincoln makes a few final touches to the speech before heading to the ceremony. Near the end of the event, after hours of parades, songs, and speeches, 10,000 people watch as President Lincoln takes his place at the speaker's podium, dressed in a black suit and his signature stovepipe hat. The gentleman who spoke right before Lincoln talked for over two hours. Lincoln speaks for two minutes, but his 272-word speech moves the crowd to tears. But after delivering the address, Lincoln is despondent. He remarks to a friend that the speech is a flat failure and that the people are disappointed. Perhaps Lincoln's tireless work, his failing health, and lack of proper sleep contributed to his cloudy assessment. In his speech, Lincoln said, The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. But in the end, the people remembered both. The Gettysburg Address is considered one of the most important speeches in American history, and Lincoln's immortal words served as a rallying cry for the Union in his time, even as they continue to inspire countless Americans today. Next on History Daily, November 22, 1963, the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, is assassinated in Dallas, Texas. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing and sound design by Molly Bach. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Stephen Walters. 
Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Northrop.